0: Welcome to another episode of How Not To Make A Game. I'm your host Stuart Neill and joining me on this episode is Pete Bottomley of White Paper Games. Hi Pete.
1: Good evening Stuart, how are you?
0: I'm not too bad actually. It's uh, it's Tuesday. It's uh, At the minute some of these weeks are just rolling into each other <laughs> and it's really hard to work out what day it is. Uh, but yeah, it's definitely a Tuesday. Uh, so... You are part of White Paper Games, actually one of the co-founders of White Paper Games. Uh, White Paper Games started in 2011 with a goal to make short narrative experiences. So first question, how did the studio come together?
1: Yeah, so to go back to 2011, it was actually in May 2010 when the official kind of uh, seed started being planted. We had just graduated a master's degree at the University of Central Lancashire, so myself mm-hmm. and Benjamin Hill I just completed an MA and we were both looking. We, we hadn't originally set out to do anything of an independent studio. And, you know, we we're looking for industry jobs. And I got offered a few uh, good mid level design jobs at some AAA studios. Um, but there was also um, a peer of mine, Aaron Foster, who had just started his own independent studio. And mm. I remember the day that it was happening. And he said, Oh, well, yeah, you know, I've just gone independent. And, you know, you should try this thing out. And I've always been very self-driven, self-motivated and kind of had uh, kind of strong creative ideas. And so, yeah, we kind of just gave it a, gave it a go. I mean, if you, I mean, you probably hear this story a lot, but if you, if you say, um, oh yeah, if I'd known what I was getting into, you know, I probably wouldn't have done it. <laughs> it is that kind of thing. Like knowing like the journey, like it's been incredible and you, you just learn so much. Mm-hmm um but it is a tough tough journey and even to say that we're approaching our 10th birthday next year kind of seems surreal um Mm -hmm. so um yeah that's how it all kind of came about and it's uh been non-stop since
0: then one of your first projects then was ether one how soon after the studio formed did you start on that project
1: oh straight away yeah we always kind of set up white paper games to develop original ip Mm -hmm. yeah and and there was no larger goal to have a studio we weren't thinking about building this company or this entity it wasn't that we want to create a business now what game ip do we want to uh, create it was very much ether one was the only thing that existed and at that time it was just ether Mm -hmm. and so yeah it was purely just a mission of creating a, a game it wasn't to build this large company uh, even to have a, a 10-year history or anything along those lines we just had an idea that we wanted to create and and we just kept our heads down for four years just plugging away we bootstrapped the whole project and yeah got it released in 2014 but yeah white paper always started just focusing on the game first essentially
0: mm-hmm The game itself wasn't necessarily a hit, but it was nominated for a new number of awards, and it was also supported by Epic and Sony. Um, It came out on the PlayStation 4 in its early sort of period, didn't it?
1: Yeah, so we released on PC first in March of 2014. Mm. And so, yeah, I mean, we had no real expectation. Like I said, we had bootstrapped it, uh, and thankfully the kind of critical reception was great uh, it, mm. you know it reviewed well um commercially it kind of it did it did fine it did okay and i guess the good thing what we've seen from our titles is that they have a long tail so mm. even now as we're developing you know the third and then into the fourth game our games seem to still resonate people and people go back and play them and and some people have played you know the occupation and gone back to ETH one and vice versa and so it's nice to see our games having a long tail in that respect but yeah out the gates um by no means was it a runaway success but you know with the critical reception being strong you know it planted the seeds for future titles um and then a year later we took it onto ps4 um which we had to Changed the entire engine code. So we originally released Ether One in UDK, which was the Unreal Engine 3. Mm-hmm. Uh, it was just a free version out of the box. And so we took the entire game into Unreal Engine 4 and released on PS4 as part of the May 2015 PS Plus collection.
0: Were you happy with Ether One as a final product?
1: This is this is a tough question because I, I, I <laughs> presume if you ask anyone about their final product, like, are you hundred percent happy? Probably not, mm-hmm. but it was the best possible thing we could have done at that time. And that's all you can really ask for. As soon as you let it ship, then it's kind of out of your hands and hopefully people that play it resonate with it. And, and we definitely saw that from Ether one, the amount of messages that would come in and because of the emotional tones, um, it was very much a game focused on dementia and it's something that we were interested in exploring, and so, you know, we were getting messages from parents playing with their children and the children asking questions and it opened up a whole conversation about maybe some grandparents or something um, close to that family's heart. And so just the amount of kind of nice reception it got from the players, mm-hmm. um, that that in itself um, was good. But as a, you know, as a in quotations product, I guess you're never going to be happy with that side of things because you always know oh, there's extra things you could tweak, all those things you would change. Mm-hmm. And especially in hindsight, I think the interesting thing about Ether was that I could not look at that game for a good few years. Um, I couldn't watch live streams. I couldn't watch Let's Plays um, just because it took us four years of bootstrapping. It was literally, you know, the 14, 16, 18-hour days consistently um, for that duration. And it was very much a, a project of, just everyone's like complete drive to get that out the door Mm. a lot of the other team members could you know play through it and watch let's plays and all this kind of stuff but it was just way too close and deep for me at the time and now looking back you know i've seen different people kind of play it i think oh that was actually a really cool game that was interesting and something the whole team's really proud of but um yeah, that's, I guess, a long, long-winded long way of saying, yes, we are happy, but there's always more you can do.
0: <laughs> yeah. Uh, on Steam, you self-published it. How was it financed and then obviously published through PS4? And was there anything special about the promotion that you did for it?
1: So a lot of it was financed, like I said, just bootstrapped, so i mean maybe a funny story maybe not so much of a funny story but um i had a part-time job at starbucks on my bachelor's degree and then on my master's degree i took it over into that but i also had some industry placements at travelers tales games working on the lego games and whilst trying to complete the master's degree now some of it was going to us masters but essentially i was trying to work three different projects i was doing the starbucks during the week um on the weekend sorry the traveler's tales uh three three or four days a week and then doing the master's degree in the evenings and the rest of the weekend so upon completing the graduation you know we we both myself and ben both graduated with distinction got offered industry placements at a decent salary and then we're like okay we're going to turn down that salary and go back to working the part-time job at starbucks to try and fund this project and so few people on the team just had you know part-time jobs and it was very much you know if someone needed 100 pounds for a train ticket for the month pass Mm -hmm. or whatever it was we'd kind of just try and distribute the funds as and when needed so there was no organization or setup it was very much if you think of that independent game spare, it was very much that at the time Um, partway through the project we got some funding off the Abate funding and that was twenty five k, which which helped a lot. Mm. Um, the whole project ended up being about thirty seven k in pounds, so thirty seven thousand pounds to make Ether, mm. which by any means is is very small budget for you know four years of development for a core team of six, um, sliding scales between eight and nine at any time on the project. But there was a core team of six on that project, so mm. yeah. And then we had to repay that Abate money back on the ether one sales on on release but then um yeah we used the ether one sales to develop for the extra year putting it onto playstation and then thankfully because of the playstation ps plus then we got a a fixed sum for being on there and that helped start the development of the occupation after that so it's kind of you know just working you know one Mm -hmm. milestone at a time just getting to the next goal and then the next goal and very much bootstrapping it
0: Was burnout an issue? Just with you saying about the sort of numerous different jobs and things that you were doing at the time. Did the team sort of suffer from that sort of thing at the time?
1: So it's interesting you say at the time, because I'd say no, but we were burnt out, but not knowing we were burnt out, if you get what (laughs) I mean. So, you know, just working that many hours and just being very dedicated to that project and the project just going on for as long as it did you don't realize how much of yourself you've invested in i think it goes back to the point of me saying you know you couldn't appreciate that game for the game say it was lovely to hear people's thoughts and how people resonate with it i could definitely um because you've created something for others to experience so that's Mm -hmm. nice but in terms of the game and me seeing the game um definitely could not look at that and it's definitely a symptom of burnout um yeah we took a good um like two months three months off just no one was working after either just to decompress Hmm. and you know it's nice because we had a small studio space in manchester which we still have but we've expanded out into um buildings next door so it's a larger space but um we still have the same space that we're developing ether one in and um i've spoken about this before but just going in and there's almost like this presence in the room as soon as you walked in there's just this very heavy feeling of this space there was no more than maybe five meters by five meters maybe even less but it was just this space that we had like lived and breathed ether one in and it just took you know we had to paint the walls and just refresh the space and just get it feeling good ready for our next game Mm. so yeah if you had said burnout on the project i don't think anyone would have felt that at the time but in hindsight that's for sure something that was present and it's taken us a a long while to kind of adjust you know studio pipelines and practices and make sure because you know when people enjoy what they're working on they want to put the extra time in, but at the same time you need these kind of parameters and, um, I guess processes in place to make sure that doesn't happen. So thankfully on our latest project, that's got a lot better. Um, you know, each game, we just get a little bit more refined in our approach, but it's definitely a huge important aspect of the games industry because everyone working in games just loves, well, hopefully loves what they do. So, um, it's very hard to say oh the clock's hit five it's time for me to just you know log off and not do any work because you're just constantly thinking about that
2: Mm
0: -hmm. the occupation then came out in 2019 um so it took four years to make and was released across three platforms in seven languages now uh, the occupation is a bigger project um (laughs) bigger than you expected
1: yes (laughs) yes is a short answer um And I kind of put on the website in Reflection as well. Definitely hubris on my behalf and potentially on Reflection. Too much of a undertaking and a a few of the reviews that we got on launch. And this was, you know, we still got a Polygon Recommends and GameSpot 8 out of 10. But some of the, I remember a Waypoint interview that basically said, oh, this was a... You know, this was a, a big bite, um, but possibly too big, or, or just something along those lines, where they kind of understood the scope of what we were trying to achieve, but we just didn't quite land there. Mm-hmm. And it was very much born. I think each new game a studio makes is a, a response to the previous title. Mm-hmm. I very much believe that if you have creative control over what games you're making, but with Ether One, it was very a slow burn puzzle-based narrative-driven game and so with working on it for four years you kind of knew exactly what was happening you know you knew how to solve all the puzzles you knew all the narrative beats that were happening you kind of separate your brain from that aspect however if you ask a lot of people in the studio a lot of people will say their favorite game is Dishonored and we were taking kind of cues from, okay, we're super interested in studios like Arcane and Irrational and Looking Glass and very systemic emergent games. So what if we take our kind of walking simulator later background and apply the kind of more immersive sim elements? Mm. And, you know, you try to dive into all the interviews that um, developers at Arcane and Irrational have talked about whether developing the the thief games or the bioshock games or 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 any number of immersive sim style inspirations from the early looking glass days and you quickly realize that these games take a lot of just interconnected systems and you can't necessarily see the finished product until very close to the end and so Mm. you know things can very much um uh, we use a phrase "feature creep," where it's just like, "Oh, wouldn't it be cool if you could do that and that?" And so, scope was a huge thing. And yeah, there are the parts of that game where I look back and think, "Oh, yeah, if we had just tightened that down." Or you know, don't, going back to your earlier question, "Like, are you 100 percent happy?" And you can always pick apart those things. Yeah. um But in terms of scope, yeah, it was a huge game, and especially for a team our size, um similar to the game that we're currently working on. I think we always try to just elevate ourselves. Um, but that was definitely a huge thing to tackle. And as you say, then that combined with shipping on multiple platforms and multiple languages and again mm-hmm. doing physical retail. So both Ether One and the Occupation had physical retail where, you know, you can go and buy the disc in a in a store or online. And so that just creates then extra pressure because, you know, earlier dates need to be hit than if it was purely digital. Mm-hmm. So yeah, there's a lot of um, combining factors there to impact scope
0: did the occupation sell better than either one
1: yeah so i think on paper yes um but then you know you've got to think about how much you've invested uh the Mm -hmm. team size if you think you know we bootstrapped ether one so if you only develop a game for a small slice of money and the rest is you know in quotations profit again you never really as a small team make profit you make enough to make the next game and that's Good to make the next game mm. so yeah it, but it was also just bigger in scale it had a bigger publishing budget um yeah so it's just you start and i guess we'll get onto this but you start thinking about that in terms of okay what the next game can we really tighten down kind of the production scope but also you know stay on budget stay on track and not overspend on the title to mm. make sure we are you know increasing our chances of having those reserve funds to keep developing games that you really want to develop Hmm.
0: the story for the occupation is very politically minded Uh, i'm just wondering was it influenced by political issues at the time
1: yeah and and those things came up quite a bit um originally i was watching a documentary called winter on fire on netflix and also um, the Citizen Four stuff with Edward Snowden um, mm-hmm. was very prevalent at the time. And it was just where a lot of the studio's head was at at the time. And again, similar to Ether One, how we kind of started the game and realized that you know a lot of people on the team had close connection with either family members that had experienced dementia or family members who work in the scientific field and um, worked with patients with dementia, so it's very much bred of okay, what what most resonates with this team at the time, and so yeah, the occupation was a response to these things happening, and then you know mid-development, there was just a series of kind of uh, awful, tragic events in the UK where you know the MEN Arena bombing mm. that was a mile away from the studio, and we were developing this game where based in a northwest town you know an explosion happens in the game and kills a number of people and you know these things are happening on our doorstep and that was just such a surreal thing to like you know you separate entertainment from life and you just think oh, this this isn't even i don't know it was just a very tough thing to deal with and then later on as we are um you know promoting the game in quotations um where resident we released a trailer on the day of the london uh london bridge attack so our trailer went mm-hmm. out on that day and then it's like well you know you can't market like you can't try and promote this thing that you're spending a lot of time working on when these just awful events are happening so yeah it was it was kind of a tough situation and it played heavy on a lot of the team and so mm. it's just um you've gotta I don't know, we make art um because it's a reaction to the things that we're thinking and feeling. So of course life is gonna bleed into that. But um mm. yeah, I think it's important to put that kind of stuff into your work as well.
0: Mm. I've played uh, a little bit of the occupation so far, and for me, it does feel as if the story will always be relevant, even you know, despite it, the way or the time that it's set in. Um, I don't think any of that stuff is going away. Um, I'm sure you know, while that may not have necessarily been something that you were aiming at, I'm sure it will be a nice thing to have a little bit of a legacy with it.
1: Yeah, and I think some of it. I mean, I definitely heard criticism of the game regarding this, in that what we try to do, or definitely what I was trying to do in either design or narrative. And again, everyone on the team collaborates in all different areas. So it's never just a single person, but at least from my perspective, what the kind of core theme we're driving at is kind of i was interested in the gray areas you know things aren't just black and white there's always two sides and Mm -hmm. we didn't just want to try and shove this single view but ultimately some of the criticism of the game was that you know it was it was blurred and it was like okay what is this game actually trying to say so Mm it's you know partly well it was intentional that you know we didn't say this is specifically what happened and this is why and this is what you know you should think and feel about this game but maybe sometimes games need to do that uh, maybe they don't mm-hmm. like um, it was a very mixed reception uh, on that which you know doesn't necessarily bother me too much if if someone really loves your work and then some kind of think oh well that's not necessarily for me but I see what they're doing that that's kind of uh, fine in, in, in my mind but yeah it yeah, be curious to know, you know, your thoughts later down the line of mm. how, how that does land. Yeah,
0: yeah. You exhibited the occupation at EGX Raised and EGX in 2017. How important are events like that for the development of a game? And did any of the player feedback cause changes uh, to what was eventually released?
1: Yeah, I mean that is an interesting question because just a week and a half ago, we got back from our first public show. Mm-hmm. of our latest game Conway and that's essentially been you know 85 percent develops during lockdown um which is a strange thing and yeah these shows are kind of early chances to get players uh, eyes on the game get early playtest feedback and we've definitely been playtesting during lockdown just remotely but it's never the same as in person and so you know seeing players sit down and start playing your game just seeing how they're yeah, controlling where they're looking where they're moving you know you get hundreds and hundreds of players all weekend long just you know being able to have that holistic view of all the players and make design decisions based on that is super important and even on the back end of um egx this time we've you know, been able to implement some quality of life things that we saw, um, that could do with changing, and so you know, in person shows are just yeah great for that kind of thing, and yeah, I think we continue to do those shows, and especially when you can get outside of the UK. You know, we've been um, fortunate to be able to do uh, a few Indiecade shows in California and just different uh um events in Europe and just having a chance to connect with players that are kind of outside our bubble as it were Mm. yeah it is is just great and especially great for the team motivation because i think when you're developing the game um you've very much got a magnifying glass on everything that's wrong or that you want to change or that's incorrect but then when you get to a show and you you see people playing and enjoying it you think oh it's actually kind of okay yeah that's Mm -hmm. that's good so um that's always nice to see as well. It's kind of a good team motivation to get back from a show.
0: Mm -hmm. Um, Whenever I was playing it, I was looking up the achievements and I was actually quite surprised to see that the achievement percentages for the game are quite low, you know, compared to the number of players that apparently have it on steam. I'm just wondering, is it a case of people have it, have tried it and just didn't quite know what to make of it?
1: Yeah, it could possibly well be. So, um, they're not necessarily it's interesting you say that because i didn't know that and it's useful feedback things that we do intentionally do with our achievements uh we tend to put them not on the critical path so we try to Mm -hmm. design our achievements for things that maybe are unintentional in the game or that you're not necessarily looking at but then you get rewarded for doing this cool unique thing okay Mm -hmm. so very much for our games we try to not have achievements that just pop up for you being in the game now i know there's a couple Mm -hmm. where it's like oh you've been to your meeting on time and that kind of pings um but very intentionally we try not to have achievements for the player just doing the actions in the game that they would be doing anyway because i don't know for us I, i guess it kind of feels patronizing when you're just like oh you've got an achievement for just playing as it was, so we we, we want to see re- uh, achievements as kind of rewards for just delving into the deeper game design. Um, so I mean, it could be one or the other. It could just, I mean, I would, I suspect it's probably a mixture of both. I suspect it's probably, you know, people feeling overwhelmed with the world and the fixed time aspect, and especially because it it does open up pretty quickly you know we have that kind of opening section and tutorial you know we feel like that's pretty well paced and then Mm -hmm. yeah maybe it just opens up a little bit too soon and people like oh now i'm on my own and there's no hand holding Uh, and the people that got it really really got it and it resonated strongly with them but you know even uh, close developer friends you know have struggled with especially the completionists where they just want to be able to dig into every nook and cranny, but there's kind of time against them in that respect. Um, Mm. But yeah, it's interesting to hear that and see that. And it definitely gives me things to think about as uh, a game designer.
2: Mm.
0: What lessons did you learn from the project?
1: A lot of them were production lessons, less on game design, more on production Uh, because of white paper games um i'm generally trying to do a few different things at the the same time on the occupation this turned out like a terrible idea in hindsight because you know i was trying to write narrative do game design do production and just do the day-to-day running of the studio Mm -hmm. as well as kind of the the kind of technical design with the uh, rest of the design and code and it was just too many spinning plates i think so with conway we were very intentional and working to our strengths and it was maybe going back to the burnout question that you were talking about from ether one very much being conscious of the team and making sure that we have you know the right budget and publisher and making sure that team pipelines were well communicated. I did a whole bunch of reflection after the occupation. It was mostly on the I guess leadership slash production side. So whether it was um, you know, reinforcing some good production processes in the studio and just getting those communication pipelines going and also just knowing how to delegate and you know, it depends how into the weeds we want to get, but just on a high level, it's the I never realized the distinction between delegation and abdication in that, you know, you think you're delegating, but what you're actually doing is tipping all this work onto someone else. And then when inevitably they don't do it the exact way that you thought it should be done, you then take it all back and just try and do it yourself. Mm -hmm. And it's just a terrible way to work. And, you know, it trips up a lot of people when they first get into, kind of trying to delegate workload to um, an additional team member so that you know you can all contribute correctly Uh, and that was a huge thing because i was very much from the ether one days um you know very just head down just work as many hours to try and get this thing done so yeah i learned a lot of lessons but they were more so on the kind of leadership and also kind of production side and just trying to get our studio pipelines and processes in place
2: Mm.
0: you'd said earlier that the uh, team is celebrating its 10-year anniversary Um, next year was it
1: yeah next june um next june the 28th so Mm. um yeah we had it kind of came off took us off guard a little bit because it was our ninth birthday this year And so when we kind of realized that, you know, we've shipped these three games in nine years and, you know, we're moving into our 10th year and what kind of momentum can we start driving towards that? Yeah, it's a super exciting time.
0: How has the studio survived financially during this time? Obviously only releasing two games during that period and neither of them being runaway hits that a lot of indie developers are hoping for do you have you know is it extra jobs or is there um financing what have you coming from uh, elsewhere
1: yeah I don't, I don't know what the answer to that is all just <laughs> i just know that you know we're still here nine and a half years later which is uh an incredible thing to think about and you mm-hmm. know we tr- we raise everyone's salaries at the end of each project and we just keep mm-hmm. um pushing ourselves further and making sure that everyone's quality of life is good but yeah i I don't think I could answer that answer in a simple way other than you know along the way, you have these companies that just help you out uh, massively. Mm-hmm. So whether it was Sony on Ether One and then epic games for Ether One and into the occupation really helped promote our work and mm-hmm. took us to shows and got us in front of eyes that we wouldn't have been able to otherwise be in front of. And then the UK Games Fund is instrumental to helping small teams in the UK as well. Yeah, we, we managed to get the UK Games Fund grant for the occupation. Mm. So we kinda took some of the initial Ether One money, put that into the occupation, and then got some additional funding from the UK Games Fund. And that essentially got us, you know, eighty percent through the project. And then we managed to get a publisher because we were so far ahead of in development on the occupation. Mm. And then going back to Epic Games, you know they gave us a, a Epic Mega Grant for Conway as well. So you know they not they not only kind of promote your game on the social channels and uh, you know invite you to shows, but you know they're genuinely there to support developers financially as well, which is incredible. Mm-hmm. But then ultimately, you just need a, a strong publisher behind you and this is our second time working with sold out uh, on the new conway game and i think the nice thing about working with a publisher that you feel like you can trust and have a good relationship you know we say we kind of pitch the game and say okay conway is going to cost this over this much time and they actually came back and said well we hear what you're saying it's probably going to cost you know x plus another 15%, 15% and they added that 15% on to the development budget and said, you know, that that makes more sense to us and it actually turned out to be that case, you know, we did need that 15%. So, mm-hmm. you know, you want to make sure you're signing the correct publishing deal so that you know, first of all you can retain your IP and your rights and again try and keep uh, enough of your game sales money to have these long tails that I was talking about. Thankfully, both, um, with the one, the occupation, and then hopefully with Conway, you know, we do have game sales happening two, three, four, five years after the launch. So if you can keep generating that income and the portfolio of games and with each game you release, it kind of compounds that income hopefully. And then, you know, if you can get the right publishing deal and springboard onto the next project, Um, that's definitely the toughest thing i think for smaller teams it's moving from one project to the next Mm -hmm. because you know you're running out of money at the end of one project you need to springboard onto the next one and it all depends on how well the game's received and you know whether those conversations whether there's people coming to you to ask you you know what you're working on or whether doors start closing because you know the game may not have landed as successfully it needed to be Um, so it's definitely tough Mm. i know very few developers if any that you know have the perfect formula you've just gotta have a strategy and be able to adjust when you know things shift as the games industry does on a monthly
0: basis Mm -hmm. yeah how has the pandemic affected the studio as a team and even your working practices as well i
1: mean in working practices it made us realize that we do have a, a much stronger pipeline in place um mm. again the kind of learning and development we did on the back end of the occupation the processes that we had in place thankfully were almost galvanized through lockdown so because you know we had existing pipelines and communication channels you know the game didn't slow pace at all so in terms of the development side you know lockdown um wasn't really noticeable on that front. Um, but what you do notice is the need for more written communication if certain people aren't in um, certain conversations, as is the case with most um, studios and, and workplaces. Realizing that you can have more of a blended approach and maybe you're only in the studio for two or three days a week and maybe you can work more at home. Mm. But then also realizing some people are. Um, I kind of fine working on their own and they kind of just like putting the headphones on and working away and I'm more introverted in that respect and kind of they don't need to feed off other people's energy to feel energized whereas you know some people do need that in-person communication to kind of feed off and kind of bounce ideas mm-hmm. off and you know everyone's different and you need to be aware of that whoever you're working with and who does what in different situations and just making sure you're keeping everyone in the loop. So it's more on the kind of team personal communication side that you've really got to pay attention to, um, during lockdown. But you know, um, from a purely development standpoint, um, yeah, I don't think we missed a beat with that. Mm
2: -hmm.
0: So Conway then disappearance at daily of you is coming out on November 2nd this year what's the premise of the game
1: we wanted to approach a detective thriller so very much inspired by films like rear window and uh misery and it kind of started from a place of uh us wanting to tell a really well-paced thriller in a detective franchise um so mm-hmm. the story um starts as a, a young girl of eight years old has been uh, taken from her home and your neighbors are suspicious there's um suspicions actions going on and it's up to you as a retired investigator to try and piece together um the evidence to try and find a suspect and locate uh, the missing girl so it's very cinematic Uh, it's very puzzle driven Mm. you can converse with the characters in the world and have different dialogue options and yeah hopefully it's just a really well-told story with good pacing and interesting character acts um, which people can just sit down headphones on and really just get immersed in the the mystery of daily view
0: hmm. the game has um, a shorter development time it's only been in development for what about two years or so um, now obviously that's a lot shorter than the other two projects was this a deliberate thing or was it just that the project came together an awful lot more quickly
1: Yeah definitely deliberate because as I was saying we kind of have to pitch the project and the duration that we think it's going to take and yeah we very much wanted a shorter development cycle but a lot of the efficiencies that we um, created for ourselves and our production pipelines and just knowing what areas to invest the time into yeah it was very much you know, this probably would have been another four-year project had we'd not reflected on the previous development cycle mm-hmm. and tried to really reinforce our pipeline and process and just, again, just allow the team to create and make sure we can delegate. A lot of the kind of more directorial team um, had people working with them on this project where they could offload some of that work onto other developers on the team, which was really nice to see. So, you know, slowly expanding the team, and yeah, the goal is to bring down our production process. Um, I really like, from a kind of development standpoint, the kind of Pixar process where they try to release a, a film every eighteen months. So, mm-hmm. you know, if you do have you know a thirty-six month development or something in thereabouts, you can have multiple projects in the works, and you, and you can kind of release one and have another one in the works whilst you released that one, and kind of. Mm-hmm. Um, it definitely helps a small team because you know when you go back to eth and the occupation taking four years you release a game but then you're kind of quiet for you know, three years of that next development mm-hmm. phase and you know it's tough for a small team to go silent for so long and then try and generate noise but you don't just want to generate unnecessary noise you want to provide value for people that mm-hmm. are following your work so um definitely bringing down the production process just helps helps focus what the important aspects of the game are and it's definitely our best game that we've made so far hopefully you know it resonates with people but yeah i guess we'll see in a couple of weeks how people how it lands with people
0: Mm -hmm. it says on the website that this project brought a little bit more of a change to how the studio works uh, with an emphasis on hiring and continuous learning is that more to do with hiring people for specific jobs or is it that it's more about expanding the skill set of the people that you already have?
1: A bit of both, definitely a mm-hmm. bit of both. And that we like everyone to contribute to design on the team. So whether it's narrative design or, or game design or anywhere in between, you know everyone has equal contributions. So you know someone coming in on day one, uh, you know if they have an interesting idea and the team kind of agrees with it, Um, you know, we very much discuss and dissect and just try and pull apart those ideas. So, you know, from a kind of team development perspective, we you know, we like people on the team that are able to share in other people's processes. So it doesn't need to Mm -hmm. be someone that's hyper specialized in this one thing that doesn't care about other aspects of development. We want people to be able to comment on animation and art and design and just um gameplay flow and and all, all the above really. So yeah it's, it's not necessarily from a specialized perspective i think it's just getting the right people on board and i think knowing it's a very tough thing for small teams and it's only something that we realized after five or six years and it took uh, again a lot of reading on the back end of the occupation and just you know not understanding things about Uh, team culture and process and things that don't necessarily get written down that go unsaid but it is just part of the dna of a a company in a studio Mm -hmm. so just as being more aware of the types of developers we need on the team and what what different people can contribute that was very helpful when knowing how to onboard new people onto the team but yeah at the same time as well um we keep trying to learn new skills so you know from eth one to the occupation we had never tackled 3d characters or ai so we thought okay let's just try that out and let's see how that goes and similarly for the occupation to conway both our previous two games had been first person games and now conway is a um you know almost like a third person fixed camera style game and i had never done cameras before i've always been super interested in cinematography and different Mm -hmm. directorial styles so I had never done any camera work before so this is my kind of my first foray into camera work in a game as well which has been fun to learn and similarly for many people on the team everyone's kind of picked up new uh, approaches or processes and you know we're constantly trying to learn and just invest in our own skill sets.
0: You've worked with a couple of different publishers now um, with Epic and Sold Out and even Humble. Is there a difference in the way that publishers help out a project and is getting the right publisher critical for a project?
1: Definitely yes to the last question about is it critical? Like you've just got to find someone that you feel like you can trust because ultimately they know more than you in that area and that's why you need their help. And I think it's an important distinction between knowing what you need a publisher for, whether it's just the funding or whether you need the full suite of services do you need help with qa and localization and marketing and Mm -hmm. you know all these different factors that uh, arise um you know the development is one side of things you need money for development but you know shipping and releasing a game is a whole other 50 percent of the process so Mm -hmm. and as a small team you don't know what you don't know so you you hope that publisher can fill in those those knowledge Mm -hmm. gaps so yes finding a publisher that has maybe i guess maybe shipped some games similar to the type of game that you're developing in their portfolio or they have you know a good track record of releasing games and just speaking to developers that have worked with them before and seeing what their experience is that's always going to be a good uh, test of the publisher and what we've experienced just locationally you know Working with a publisher that's based in London, so first of all, we're in the same time zone. So ten a.m. to us is ten a.m. to them, <laughs> and working in pounds sterling as well. You'd be surprised at the difference that that can make. So when you you are trying to run a studio and you know you need uh, an invoice of, you know, say one thousand pounds, um that that sum of money is coming through into your bank as one thousand pounds, whereas. If you have someone in the US paying, in uh, you know, in the milestones, that one thousand um, dollars, even if you try and equate for currency changes, you you don't know what that's coming through at on the day that that payment is made um, mm. with the currency fluctuations. So, especially as a small team where every penny matters, you know that that cost can fluctuate dramatically over the space of a, a development. So, just knowing it's it's not enough to just know how to develop games you've got to understand all those other aspects so Mm -hmm. and there's a lot of good publishers out there now um so many publishers have some great resources online and you can speak to their teams a lot of them are available on different social channels or uh, events that you attend Uh, and so it very much feels like publishers are, are trying to make connections with these small teams and really help them shout about their games um, mm-hmm. so in my experience it's never been anyone intentionally trying to trip anyone else up but at the same time you need to make sure your expectations align with their expectations and know how to communicate those things.
0: Mm-hmm. Uh, Ether One was a puzzle game about memories. Uh, the Occupation is a journalistic detective game with stealth elements. With Conway does that add a more of a common theme that runs through white paper games or is it just that the studio has quite a recognisable style, do you think?
1: It's semi-intentional and semi-not-intentional in that, you know, when we say Mm. a white paper game, it means something that could be hard to articulate, but when you play it and you see it, it's just like, yeah, this is kind of different than other games. And I think, again, it's just allowing a lot of voices um to kind of contribute and find the vision that's not to say that you need to take on board every suggestion because it you know may result in a diluted experience but everyone needs to be able to own their areas but take on board feedback and yeah very much everyone on the team is invested in making sure that we just you know create the best games that we can which you know Mm -hmm. obviously is easy to say because no doubt everyone tries to do that but yeah we do very much pay attention to the player and we have values of trying to respect players time and input and their investment in into the game so we try and reward the exploration and the poking around and pulling at character acts and they're all things that we care a lot about so yeah hopefully you know if people have played eth one the occupation you know they feel like they may have a, a slight distinctive style then yeah that that naturally just carries through into come way hopefully future games
0: how important are wish listings uh to the release of a game obviously with you being about what just over two weeks away mm. um from release is there a large number of wish lists so far and is that a good predictor as to how well the game will actually launch
1: yeah i mean you definitely have to ask publishers more about that because ultimately that that's what you know takes their Kind of data boxes, I guess, mm-hmm. but um yes, they are hugely important. Just because it shows people, uh, for, I guess, from a development standpoint, it shows that people are resonating with the game. It shows people are, are, are interested in what they see, and it and it gives the publisher kind of slight metrics to start working with in terms of how well it's going to be received and where the player base is, and loads of different things that can affect the marketing of the game and the release of the game so it definitely definitely helps developers when you wishlist their game so if you ever see any developers kind of even though it might be the hundredth time where you've seen someone saying oh wishlist our game uh, it, it just helps so much so yeah mm-hmm. please do that whenever you see teams posting about that but I guess, you know, ultimately, my slightly cynical mind goes to, well, you know, I have Netflix, and I add a lot of things to my watch list. Uh, there's many, many films on there that I like the look of. Are there some films on my watch list that I've not watched since 2017 when I added them? Probably. <laughs> and so, you know, the, the thing is, the classic example of everyone's libraries are full of games that they've not played yet. So, mm. you know, Wish listing is one part of it, but onboarding them and saying, Yeah, please come and check out this game and just getting them to really you know, invest their time and money into it, that's a tough thing. Mm-hmm. But the wish list is definitely a point forward in that you can just at least remind people that the game's there, um, because it's very busy marketplace and industry.
0: Yeah, um, I'm guilty of using my wish list as a a way of remembering that the games exist um, because otherwise they will just disappear sort of from sight so very very easily and even whenever it comes around to sales and things like that you know at least if I go into my wish list I will suddenly go oh yeah that was that game that I was really looking at or really looking interested in and then even if I'm buying it in a sale at least I'm buying it as opposed to just sitting there doing nothing
1: yeah and 100% like if if you need to wait for the sale like uh, developers understand that like Mm -hmm. we know that you're not always going to buy this certain title at full price obviously it helps the developer but at the same time there's so many games out there that you want to play so even picking it up on sale in a christmas bundle you know the good thing about the christmas sale the winter sales or whatever time of year the sale is It's the kind of uh, supply and demand where, yes, the game might be cheaper, but so many more people will purchase it as well at the same time. Mm -hmm. So, you know, it does average out through the year. Obviously, people prefer, you know, um, know, if it's a game that you enjoy, yeah, please do pay the full price. But at the same time, it's totally understandable because ultimately you're still investing your time, you know, when it comes down to winter and you just want to check out a cool game.
0: Mm -hmm. Yeah. What, in your opinion, are the biggest challenges facing smaller studios these days?
1: It's got to be money, hasn't it? It's just got to be. Um, sources of finance, knowing how to budget, and you know when you do have money coming in, how to make it last, mm-hmm. and just better practices in the industry, better sources of finance in terms of the grants that are available, I think there's still a bit of work to do on the kind of game industry side because, you know, some of the grant processes can be just pages and pages long. And what was kind of refreshing about Epic Mega Grant process was they just want to know what game you're working on. They want to see you build. They want to know kind of what your route to market is and what kind of connections. It's not super heavy. They want to know that you're actually going to do, try and do something with the money, mm-hmm. but it was a relatively straightforward process. Whereas, you know, some. Application processes they can take up two and a half weeks of your time and require twenty thousand words and require cash flow forecasts into twenty twenty five or whatever and mm-hmm. you know their time away from development and of course you know it's there's always going to be a balance but especially with the games industry thriving and I guess one source that i forgot to mention before was the uk came from tax breaks which have been huge for small developers and that really gives you a lot of money back on your projects Mm -hmm. but yeah i think access to finance and being able to get your game to market um the two big ones there
0: Mm I actually saw a tweet earlier today just saying that one publisher uh, gets about 1500 um, pitches or whatever over a period of time and maybe takes on board like 1% of them. So even working on a project and getting a good pitch together, there is still an awful lot of competition out there um, between the developers and the projects and things like that. So it's, while it's great to see so many projects being released and what have you and, you know, um, as part of this podcast, a lot of people have always said it's a miracle that games actually get released sometimes. But whenever there is that much competition for the actual money that allows those games to get uh, released, it's uh, it's it's not an easy situation for a lot of places.
1: Yeah, and you know we originally came through Steam Greenlight with Ether One, and you know the system had its flaws, but at least Steam were had the intention to try and get something really good there and open some of those gates and without that you know these smaller teams wouldn't have access Mm -hmm. with that comes then everyone flooding the market with game ideas Uh, and so it's a tough balance between finding the people that are the teams that you really think will have the drive and energy to see it through and as opposed to people that may just be trying to pitch for the pitch sake and and may not be intending to have any long-term plans with it but yeah who's to say what's going to happen you can never predict the future but yeah hopefully some mechanism can be created to help the teams that are trying to really put their energy and time into it uh, help Mm -hmm. elevate them through some kind of process yeah
0: whenever i'm sort of getting up show notes and things for um, the show i do a little bit of background research obviously and try and play the games and things one of the things that came up was that you're still teaching as an associate lecturer on games design courses do courses these days adequately prepare students to enter the industry?
1: Yeah, I believe so. I've just been there today, actually. I do um, five hours a week at uh, the University of Central Lancashire. So, yeah, I think the important thing about the course is uh, making sure that you have lectures on there that have either recently been in the games industry or currently working in the game industry mm-hmm. i know a lot of industry people that do part-time work at universities or at least give live lectures and just having that connection with industry knowing what the most up-to-date tools and pipelines are as well as having more senior lectures that maybe um st- stopped in the game industry you know five ten years ago so there's that nice mix of uh, skill sets but yeah i think I'm aware of a lot of courses, especially in the UK, that um, have strong connections with industry. There's um, good connections with things like Transfuser, which is a UK Games Fund program. I think the the pipeline from students to industry, um, we're, we're slowly starting to bridge that gap, I think.
0: You've been also teaching for about a decade or so. Have you seen a change in the diversity of students taking the courses during that time?
1: Yeah, very much so. It used to be, you know, maybe three or four percent female uh, to male split uh, three or four percent mm-hmm. being the female split that there was i can't decide because we've not got metrics on specific metrics i'd be curious if other people calculate this but there did seem to be a big swing maybe around six six years ago or so where you know it started getting very heavily female populated so it was more like 50 50 which was great to see it feels mm-hmm. like it's cooled off a bit again in the last couple of years, and I'm not sure what that shift is. And again, I have no data to buy that. It doesn't feel like it's an extreme as before, but maybe it's, you know, maybe three in 10 uh, students are, are female. So mm-hmm. it, it definitely got more equally weighted at one point. And I don't know whether it's just the last couple of years or, or what there, but yeah, no, it's incredible to see and more programs like Women in Games and helping inspire young girls to get into game design and also just opening those doors up earlier on because now they have college courses and you can go, uh, may even go back as GCSE, but I know they do code camps for younger people and having these college courses and then going into university, you know, we need more of that. And I think, uh, especially the UK government's trying to push that, uh, into schools a lot more. And, you know, it's a big industry to be joining. So, yeah, it's it great to see the shift and hopefully that shift continues.
2: Mm.
0: What's next for White Paper Games then? Um obviously after the launch of Conway.
1: Hopefully another game. Um <laughs> yeah, so we'll see we'll see how people r- receive this game. Uh our intention very much early on, you know, even as you just abbreviated Conway, even though it's called Conway Disappearance a Daily View. Conway is very much our idea of a detective franchise, and we want to um, create more detective thriller games in this vein. There's a lot more we can, uh, a lot more we have to say with Robert and Catherine's relationship in the game for those who, who check it out. And so, yeah, we're very much interested in continuing that arc because we've now developed a, an existing ip before we've always moved on to a new ip mm-hmm. and we just think um yeah there's something here and you know like the sherlock holmes and there got christies we we'd love to develop a larger detective thriller franchise
0: mm-hmm. very good right three quick questions then just to finish off the interview what comes first the mechanics or the story it's
1: not a quick response so in the aid of <laughs> uh speeding this up we'll go story but it's there's not a true answer but i'll go story
0: (laughs) would it depend on what sort of game you're making as well
1: exactly uh and they both need to be working in parallel and we tend to think high level first to get world tone and feeling but then we go very low level in the mechanic design and think about tactile interaction and then meet the the kind of moment-to-moment gameplay in the mid-level loop uh, as the the past starts to converge, so we do think high level kind of main beats. Mm-hmm. We go very tactile in terms of game design, but then we kind of meet in the middle with like the pacing and the arc and the character threads and all that kind of stuff.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, what's a game you love but never hear enough of?
1: I'm pretty bad at game industry news, but I feel like not enough people speak about Prey, the mm-hmm. Arcane Studios version of Prey. I feel like that went a little, it wasn't as big of a hit as Dishonored it felt like. So Pray for me is is a, a, an excellent, excellent game that not enough people played, I don't think.
0: And can a game be truly bad?
1: Yeah, that's such a tough question. I <laughs> I mean, I, I really don't, it depends. My response would be if the creators were setting out to create something that they were proud of, I don't see how that can be bad mm-hmm. because I feel like if you're making it for yourself, there's other people like you. And as long as it has a strong drive, there's going to be someone else to resonate with it. Like, if But at the same time, if you're just making something to make something and you, you don't really have that investment or passion, maybe it could be bad. But I gen- mm. genuinely believe anyone that sets out to try and create something they're proud of, how could that be bad? I, 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 yeah, maybe that's too optimistic, but that's what I'll go with.
0: No, I think that's fair. Again, I've seen a couple of other people... Uh, sort of talk about the subject, and everybody was saying that, yes, they can be flawed, but there is usually something there Exactly. um, within the game that, you know, it was obviously made with a passion that still makes it at least entertaining. I agree with that. Yeah. That's the interview done then. Uh, So thank you very much, Pete. Obviously, uh, well, whenever I'm doing the show, I pass it over to my guests now, um, just to allow them to do any outs or plugs, um, usually for their own products, of course, but also if there's anybody else that we should be going out and checking out.
1: Yeah, so I mean, you can find us at White Paper Games on the platforms that you use to uh, connect with game development studios. As we were saying before, if you did want to wishlist Conway or check out any of our other games, that would be uh, hugely beneficial, but yeah there's just so many great studios in the uk so many good small teams there's a few small teams working on some really cool stuff that just isn't public at the moment which i'd love to just shout about but yeah i don't know the the manchester northwest development scene is great and yeah sorry i just don't have a good response other than that the games industry is in a really good place right now so um yeah no special shout outs but the people listening hopefully would know who they were.
0: Yeah, that's all right. Well, thank you very much, Pete. Um, and that's been a great interview, so it has. And uh, certainly good luck with the release of Conway, A Disappearance of Daily Reviewing. So thank you everybody for listening. Um, if you want to get in contact with the show, you can get in contact um, with us via Twitter, which is how to make a game. That's how the number two, make a game. Uh, you can get in contact with me and my personal account at St. Stewart. You can email the show at Gamecast at gmail.com. Um, the show is on anchor.fm and other podcast platforms, including Spotify now. Yeah, so thank you very much, Pete.
1: Cool. Thanks for your time, Stuart. All right, and goodbye. Goodbye.